Hi, I'm Zach Weston with the Good Food Institute. Today, we'll be talking about growing meat, a market-based approach to building an ethical food system. Today, we're going to be discussing the case for rethinking meat and why we believe it's critically important to produce the same meat that consumers love, just in a better way. I'll be giving an overview of the most promising alternative protein technology areas, and then we'll dive into the unresolved questions and white space opportunities that researchers, students, and entrepreneurs can help solve to move us towards a more ethical food system. Meat has been a staple of the human diet uh, for as far back as our species can remember. It is at the center of many of our cultural and cuisine traditions. It helps us bond socially, and it's often used and consumed as a signal of wealth. But as many of us have come to recognize, our current approach to producing meat carries enormous social, ethical, and public health costs. Uh, and it's also unsustainable. We simply do not have the planetary resources necessary to continue producing meat the way we currently do. The reason for that is very simple. Animals are fundamentally inefficient at processing plant matter into animal meat products. Chicken is a very good example. It takes nine calories into a chicken in the form of feed crops like soy or corn to get one calorie out in the form of meat. And that's after decades of breeding and optimizing chickens to be as efficient as possible. That represents about 800% food waste before we've even reached any form of further processing or gotten anywhere close to the consumer. And because of that inherent inefficiency, that means that we need to use up to nine times as much land, herbicides, pesticides, fertilizer, and water while jacking up greenhouse gas emissions at every stage of the process. And the numbers for chicken pale in comparison to other types of meat, such as beef. Animals just were not fundamentally evolved to be meat or animal product producing uh, systems. And as such, they create massive negative environmental externalities. Animal agriculture also has a lot of negative implications for animal welfare and health. Chicken, again, is a very cogent example. In order to ensure that chickens reach, reach slaughter weight quickly, the industrial animal agriculture industry has bred chickens to feel constant hunger, to never stop eating, and to grow unnaturally fast. Breeds that used to take six months to reach full size now regularly attain that same weight in one month. To put that kind of crazy growth in perspective, it would be as if a human baby reached full physical maturity at the age of three instead of taking the normal course of 18 years. One of the consequences of this rapid growth is that many chickens have an insufficient skeletal structure and are frequently crippled by bones that break under the stress of their unnaturally large weight. When you combine this with overcrowded conditions, constant heightened levels of stress, poor sanitation, it really creates a horrible life for farmed animals. Finally, animal agriculture is a massive contributor to global public health issues. The first and most egregious of these is antibiotic resistance. In the United States, for example, about 80% of all antibiotics are given to farmed animals instead of to humans. This widespread use of antibiotics is a major contributor to the development and proliferation of antibiotic-resistant superbugs. In a world where antibiotics stop working is essentially turning the clock back, clock back 100 years, when things like a simple cut or routine surgeries became life-threatening situations due to the high risks of infection. Secondly, animal agriculture contributes to the rise of zoonotic or animal-to-human diseases. Both farmed and caged wild animals are the perfect breeding ground for zoonotic diseases. You have high population densities, prolonged heightened stress levels, poor sanitation, 
and an unnatural diet. And that creates an opportunity for viruses to come in contact regularly with weakened animal hosts and make the jump over the species barrier. This is something that happens now as a matter of course. Avian flu, swine flu, the Nipah virus, and now, of course, most recently, the COVID-19 coronavirus. Finally, even when these viruses circulate only within their animal hosts, the impact on food security can be enormous. The current African swine fever virus outbreak in 2019 has been responsible for an almost 50% drop in pork production in China, which is the world's largest pork producing country, and has led to a dramatic rise in overall food prices, putting a real pinch on some of the most vulnerable citizens. Yet in spite of all these negative harms, global meat demand shows no signs of slowing down. There are a variety of reasons for this. Meat is tasty, it's widely available. A lot of people really enjoy meat and it's very deeply embedded in cultural traditions. But in addition, we have a very fast growing global population. And compounding that population growth is the fact that as emerging economies become more and more prosperous, one of the first things they do is retrofit their diet to include more meat. Meat consumption is seen as a status symbol, uh, something that you do once you are prosperous. And so not only do we have more people, each of those people is eating more meat on average. Which leads us to the central question that we're trying to answer at the Good Food Institute and that many other organizations are trying to answer, which is this, how will we feed 10 billion people by the year 2050? And more specifically, how will we feed those people in a sustainable, ethical, and healthy way? At the Good Food Institute, we think that alternative proteins, which are using technologies and inputs from plants, cultivated means and fermentation to produce meat, egg, and dairy products is one key answer to this question. To take each of these in turn, plant-based meat is made by taking plant proteins and restructuring them to replicate the taste, texture, and full sensory experience that consumers expect from meat. The second major category of alternative protein technology is fermentation. Fermentation can take a variety of forms when it comes to uh, creating alternative proteins. The first way is to use these microorganisms as factories by hacking them to produce high value ingredients, such as soy like hemoglobin, animal derived proteins like whey or casein that can be used as ingredients, using them to produce flavor and texture aids, etc. The second way in which we can use fermentation as a protein production platform is by harvesting the microorganisms themselves as whole cell products or as ingredients. Examples of this would include algae, fungi, and bacterial proteins. Finally, fermentation is also useful as a processing aid that can convert commodities such as raw plant crops and proteins into ingredients that are optimized for food production. The third technology area that we see as being an essential part of an alternative protein industry is cultivated meat. Cultivated meat is real animal meat that has the same biological and chemical structure as actual meat, but is grown outside of the animal. Cultivated meat is produced by taking cell samples directly from animals allowing those cells to proliferate in a cultivator, allowing them to differentiate into the various types of tissue that form meat, such as fat tissue, muscle tissue, and connective tissue, and then providing scaffolding or structuring so that those products can then eventually be formed into the final products that we end up recognizing as meat. These three technologies together are each promising in their own right, but they also work complementary and in symbiotic ways. Although we are just getting started in this industry, the initial results from each of these fields has been very promising. In particular, when we look at plant-based protein, which is the furthest along the commercialization pathway and is indeed becoming much more of a mainstream trend, what we've seen over the past year is that 
plant-based meats in particular have enjoyed widespread consumer acceptance and enormous amount of growth. Over the past year, we've seen major global restaurant chains such as Burger King, McDonald's, KFC, and Starbucks all test, and in some cases launch nationally, regionally, or internationally plant-based meat items. In the United States specifically, sales of plant-based meats and food service grew 37% in 2019. Last year was also a great year for retail sales in grocery stores. What we've seen is that growth in retail sales in the United States of plant-based meat were about 18% year over year for 2019. One other exciting development we've seen on the retail side is that the world's largest food and meat companies have begun launching their own lines of plant-based and blended plant and animal protein products. Companies that are known more for their animal uh, meat products than for anything else including companies like Tyson, Purdue, Hormel, et cetera, and large CPG companies like Nestle and Unilever who haven't had previously animal meat businesses. Part of the reason this is growing so quickly is that there appears to be a global pent up demand for eating more plants, integrating more plant protein in diets, and interest in eating plant-based meat substitutes. This is something that truly can touch every part of the world. And because of this widespread demand at this point, what the Good Food Institute has found in our consulting and engagement with major food and agricultural companies is that every single food and ag company in the world is talking about plant-based protein at this point. It's something that cannot be ignored. And no matter where a company is in the food supply chain, they have some sort of plant-based protein strategy and have to think about how it, they integrate it with their product offerings, with their ingredient offerings, with their menu, or with uh, onto their grocery store shelves. If we look beyond plant-based proteins, we're also seeing growth in other sectors of the alternative protein market. Cultivated meat is a great example. While cultivated meat is not yet commercially available, we've seen a massive amount of growth in the number of companies that we are aware of who are working on this technology. And it's likely that there are companies that we are not aware of that are in stealth mode that are also trying to commercialize this technology. You can see a very strong amount of growth in the number of companies who are working in this space, as well as a lot of growth in the types of things they are doing. On the B2B side, we're seeing a lot of cultivated meat companies invest in the inputs and infrastructure required to make cultivated meat successful. So figuring out how to design the bioreactors and cultivators, the scaffolding that's necessary to provide texture and structure for end meat products, the cell culture media that feeds the cells and ensures that they have the nutrients they need to grow the way they need to, and then finding the right cell, line develop, uh, cell lines and making sure those are developed and useful. On the consumer side, a lot of these startups have found different areas that they're focusing in terms of the final products they're trying to create. All the market traction that we've seen, particularly on the plant-based meat side, has got a lot of market research firms thinking that this is something that could represent a significant source of global meat production and meat consumption over the next few decades. This is one of many different market research firms that predicts a very bright and rosy future, not only for cultured meat, but also for plant-based meat, what they call novel vegan meat replacement here on this chart from A.T. Kearney. However, it's very important to recognize that this growth is not inevitable. While we know that alternative proteins can help us feed a growing population without the harmful effects of industrialized animal agriculture, this field needs a massive amount of funding, research, and talent. Over the past year, as we've engaged with the alternative protein industry supply chain, we've identified a few major bottlenecks that have been themes in most of our conversations. The first is that demand is far outpacing supply. Even the biggest companies in this space are facing production capacity constraints 
where they simply cannot produce enough of the product to keep up with consumer demand. That's not even taking into consideration the products that aren't even on the market yet, and they're going to need to be produced. The upside of this is that we need massive investments in infrastructure. Getting enough food to feed 7 billion people every day is literally the world's biggest logistics problem. And the food industry, in order to solve that problem, is all about scale. It is a high-volume, low-margin business. Until alternative protein production can attain similar economies of scale, it will just never be competitive, particularly on a cost basis. That's why we need a massive amount of infrastructure investments in the processing technologies to create the ingredients, as well as the end production technology and capacity that makes the final end products. We also need a lot more R&D to improve these products. The Every generation, new generation of these products gets better and better, but there's still a lot of work to be done to improve the sensory and the nutritional qualities to make sure that these products are healthy, clean label, that they uh, have the right nutritional balances, macro and micronutrient balances, and also just to improve the taste, the texture, the smell, all the things that matter to the end consumer. We also need R&D to figure out ways to reduce costs, optimizing all the inputs for this to make sure that they are as cheap as possible, and figure out, way, figure out ways to scale up the production. Finally, alternative proteins are often facing uncertain and sometimes hostile policy and regulatory environments. We really need governments and people with influence in the public sphere to lobby for increased governmental research funding for this field, finding ways to redirect animal agriculture subsidies, and then provide a fair labeling and production regime that's not anti-competitive for alternative protein producers. Just to put some of these challenges in perspective, this chart is looking at the comparison of all the R&D money that has ever been invested into meat alternatives, about $1 billion, with just one year global R&D investment into renewable energy. This is from 2011. And as you can see, a lot of these technologies are very promising, and it's very important that we continue to invest in making sure we have clean energy. But by comparison, R&D into meat alternatives is relatively neglected, and there's an enormous amount of room for additional funding here to figure out ways to solve the challenges that this industry is facing. One of the things we do at the Good Food Institute is really deeply understand the alternative protein value chain. Everything that goes into this value chain from the crops and the raw biomass inputs all the way through to the final product and how that's presented to the consumer. And what we've done as part of this research is talk to companies at every stage of this process to understand the challenges and the bottlenecks they're facing to growing this industry. If we focus in first on the plant-based value chain, we see that a lot of the current challenges that need resources and talent to be working on them fall into these categories. Finding the best source material is very critical. Not only the best crops, but also other sources such as fungi, algae, and bacterial sources. Making sure these are optimized by our breeding or engineering is critical so they're optimized for the final end product we're trying to create. We also need to find ways to functionalize, fractionate, and process these ingredients into formats that are useful for producing plant-based meat products. Finally, we really need to understand how to compose those products and what the production process looks like and find technologies that are optimized specifically for this application whether those alternative production methods are better extrusion technologies, shear cell, 3D printing, or other ways of providing texture, structure, taste, et cetera, to these end products. There's an enormous amount of work that needs to go into this section of the value chain. In the fermentation industry, the biggest challenges that we've noted in our interviews is the need for more novel strain engineering. 
the need for feedstocks, finding low-cost feedstocks that work really well for the different types of microorganisms we're trying to grow, and then ways to valorize waste streams, so the side streams that are part of the process, finding ways to add value to those so that the end cost of the product can be reduced. We also need to figure out how fermentation as a category of technologies can enhance all other alternative protein products, for example, by providing high-value ingredients for plant-based meat or cultivated meat. Lastly, and this is something that cuts across a variety of different technology sectors, we need ways to finance and figure out how to scale up the high-volume, low-cost manufacturing. On the cultivated meat side, the challenges really tend to focus in on a few specific areas. The first is in developing immortal cell lines. We need cell lines that represent all the species we currently eat, as well as the ones we would like to eat, as well as cell lines that can be uh, diverse enough in how they can be proliferated to form all the different types of tissue that we need to form or the different types of uh, materials we need to form for the desired end product. The second area that's incredibly important that needs a lot of innovation is finding ways to produce low-cost and serum-free cell media. According to a variety of analyses, cell media is probably the single greatest contributor to the product, often estimated around 80% of the marginal cost of the end product. And we've seen evidence that there are different ways to produce the different uh, components of cell uh, media, uh, particularly growth factors, in a way that's vastly reduced from what's commercially available. But we need a lot of work to commercialize that production process and find ways to get it to the alternative protein companies. One of the biggest challenges, as well as the opportunities, is that a lot of the expertise that we're leveraging and a lot of the existing products and ingredients we're leveraging for this come from the pharmaceutical industry which while has sort of done the proof of concept work, does have different, a very different cost structure from the food industry. Pharmaceutical industry requires extraordinarily high purities and high product quality, much higher than would be necessary for food grade production. And as a consequence, the ingredients and all of the mindsets really of everyone who works in that industry is very geared towards a much higher cost structure than is going to be competitive in the food industry. So that's part of where we need an enormous amount of innovation. Third, we really need innovation in the scaffolding. This is the structure and texture that allows the cells to be guided into the desired arrangement. So for example, making sure that a steak has a marbling of both fat and muscle cells in the appropriate way. Whether these scaffolds are biodegradable or are edible and incorporated in the final product, this is a significant area with a lot of exploration required. Finally, all of this needs to scale and scale up as big as possible in order to be cost competitive. We can grow a lot of these tissues, and we've proven this concept in the pharmaceutical industry, and that's a great first step. But substantially more research is needed to understand how to scale these processes for food-grade production at the appropriate cost levels. This is also important, not just because we need large-scale bioprocesses, but we need to get to large-scale bioprocesses, and that means having a series of interim steps in place. So making sure that we can take a process from benchtop scale in a lab to pilot scale level production in a small facility, and then allowing us to jump into full commercial scale. So while we do need massive factories, we also need intermediate level facilities to help processes scale to that high level. All of this, of course, comes at enormous costs. So this is an opportunity for folks in economics and business and financing. We need to find ways to finance these projects and find the right partners and build the right partnerships to allow for billions of dollars in infrastructure investment over the next few decades. These three processes, these three technologies, fermentation, cultivated meat production, and plant-based, all seem to work together extraordinarily well. 
One of the ways we envision that this industry will work in the future when we look at the whole supply chain is that each part of each bio part of the biomass input will be leveraged by a different part of the supply chain. So whether the biomass that's going into the system is a plant or crop, a fungi, algae, or bacterial source, we can split that up or fractionate it down into things that have different usefulness and use cases for different parts of this industry. So for example, high molecular weight proteins are often very useful for production of plant-based meat, egg, and dairy products. Amino acids and small peptides are really useful for cultivated meat production. And things like simple sugars and residual starch fractions have a lot of usefulness for microbial fermentation. These are all challenges that can be solved by entrepreneurs, by researchers, by students, by companies in relevant fields like the life sciences, ultimately by anyone who's looking for a career path or a work opportunity that has maximal impact. One of the most exciting and challenging parts of this, uh, this area is that these kinds of questions and the challenges we face are inherently multidisciplinary. And that means that the solutions themselves are probably going to involve a very collaborative approach. But it means that there's opportunity here for people from all types of disciplines, scientific, engineering, and of course, business and economic disciplines, because we need to finance all of this too. One of the ways in which the Good Food Institute is trying to drive forward the research and catalyze innovation in this space is through our research grant program. Today, we've already awarded a little over $4 million, and we prioritize research that will really drive forward plant-based, cultivated, or fermentation industries, and finding ways to create open access knowledge that can be used to accelerate the entire field. Another initiative that we're extremely interested in working with people on is finding universities, academic partners, non-governmental organizations, and private companies who can work together to form collaborative research centers. This benefits all companies by creating a ferment of a lot of different people in a multidisciplinary, uh, uh, from a variety of disciplinary backgrounds who can work together to overcome some of the challenges that we're facing, whether those are scientific R&D challenges, scaling manufacturing and engineering challenges, or other types of issues. So to summarize, new protein production technologies are creating ways to produce meat in a different and better way that are far more sustainable, far more ethical, and has far less, less negative externalities for public health. And while we're seeing substantial progress and the market is absolutely responding really well to a lot of the products that are currently available, this industry and the growth of this industry is not inevitable. In order to break through the challenges and key constraints that we're seeing, we need insights and resources from a wide variety of disciplines. It's absolutely critical. And while we see that this has garnered a lot of traction and buy-in, whether that's from established food companies or companies in related industries or from investors, there is still substantial room for funding and room for innovation. And we've really only just begun scratching the surface of what's possible with these technologies. I'd like to close with one of our favorite quotes. This is not coming from somebody who's traditionally in this industry and not somebody you'd expect. If we can grow meat without the animal, why wouldn't we? That was said by Tom Hayes in 2018. And at the time, he was the CEO of Tyson Foods, one of the largest animal meat companies in the world. Animals are literally the weakest link in the global protein supply chain. And even meat companies see that and would welcome the opportunity if they can make money to move into other forms of protein production. I'd like to finish by offering a set of resources that the Good Food Institute has for a variety of audiences. If you're a student and you're interested in ways of 
understanding how your career path can intersect with the alternative protein space, or actionalizing some of the suggestions that I've shared today about research, or putting in place a research center, or finding courses, or anything like that, please feel free to reach out to me directly, or visit our website, gfi.org student. And finally, if you're interested for anyone who's interested in different resources, we have a variety of publications that explore the science, the policy, and some of the economic implications and opportunities of this industry. Finally, we have a wide variety of resources available at our website, gfi.org. If you're interested in learning more about the science, the policy considerations, or the economic opportunities of alternative protein production. Finding alternative production technologies for producing meat, eggs, and dairy, and scaling them is one of the single most tractable ways that we can address issues like climate change, food security, animal welfare, and public health. And it's a wonderful way that we can together build an ethical food system. Thank you.